My goal today is to provide a brief introduction, a brief introduction, give me some grace here, and to what is a very live topic, the topics of gender and sexuality. So what we're going to talk about is a biblical worldview on gender identity, transgenderism, LGBTQI, and sexual orientation in general. All right? And I'm certain that in this moment, there's a most pressing question to every single one of us today that we all share in common, and it's this. Who's more nervous about this, you or me? All right? I get it. So I just want to invite us all this morning to breathe. It's easy to feel uncertain about what we should be thinking about. You might be nervous that I won't say this today in the right way. You might be nervous that we will say what the Bible says. You might be nervous for yourself or for a loved family member or friend. Let's just remember today to put kind of fight or flight responses on mute for the morning. Let's try to hear God's word clearly. Let's try to hear the entirety of what we're going to discuss and then I invite you to follow up with me, especially if this resonated with you in a specific way. We'd love to hear that. Like Pastor Steve shared last weekend, we're going to be approaching everything we talk about in this Being Human series in the same way we approach everything. We're going to be approaching with an absolute confidence that the Bible is God's revealed and true word for us, that it's sufficient and true and reliable and relevant to our lives. We want to submit to everything it communicates to us. And we understand that it reveals our incredible Savior's good heart for us. So we're happy to do that. That's our approach to this and every topic we talk about. Now, admittedly, this Being Human series is unique to us. If this is a, a first time or if you're newer to the church family, this is not a topic we talk about often. It is not a soapbox or hobby horse for us. We try to take God's word as it reveals itself about what it's talking about. And, and that is not the majority of the conversation in God's word. And so, with that in mind, the two most important questions we need to be asking about today's topics are this. One, what does the Bible say? What does the Bible say? And then two, what do I do about what the Bible says? What do I do with what the Bible says? And I want our church family to be confident and clear in God's truth. Confident and clear in God's truth. And more, I want our church family to then handle that truth in the same way that Jesus would handle that truth. You might say, I want us to be true and gracious. I want us to be full of truth and grace. Maybe I should also know that everything I'm going to say today is really just an aggregation of God's word and the work of many other wonderful authors and pastors who have done a lot better thinking in this area than I'm able to do, have done a lot of research in this area that I'm not skilled enough to participate in. All right, so I'm deeply grateful for their wisdom. And we're recommending to you across this entire month many of the resources that I myself have appreciated. 
Uh, you'll find these resources at a resource shelf out in the uh, hallway there going down towards your kids' area. There's numerous resources there for you to check out and maybe look into. And today we're highlighting for our whole church family a book called Holy Sexuality by Christopher Yuan. Uh, you can scan a barcode to buy your own copy out at the Welcome Center there by our budget information. I highly recommend this to you, especially on the sexuality topic that we're going to be talking about today. It's a wonderful resource. Please check them out and continue to learn and read. So before we get going, I want to make sure we clear up any ambiguity about the terms and topics we're talking about today. While I prefer to maybe poke some holes in the assumptions behind some of these definitions, it's how I'll be using them because it's how these terms are being used in our cultural moment. So first, I'm going to be saying the word sex a lot this morning. To be clear, I'm not talking about the activity. I'm talking about the categorization, okay? It's a biological and binary term based in genetic and physical characteristics, and there is just absolute universal scientific universality, consensus, regardless of ideology, that our human species is divided into two sexual types. The technical term for this is that we are, humans are sexually dimorphic. Think we are male or we are female. That is universally true of our sex. N nobody argues about that. What becomes interesting then is the term gender, the psychological and social and cultural aspects of being a man or a woman. Think in broad categories like masculine or feminine. And then, of course, there's gender identity, the application of the two of these ideas. One's internal sense of being male or female or both or neither. This is where you label your internal sense, your internal thoughts around who you are. Some examples are man or woman or genderqueer or non-binary or gender fluid. And because gender identity is subjective, the possibilities are as endless as people are creative. Hence, there's a growing list of gender options these days. But notice the language here. These are gender options, not sex options. And then there's transgender, which is an umbrella term for anyone whose gender identity is misaligned between their gender and their sex. You might see, say misaligned between who they are internally and how they are physically. And then sexual orientation, which is an enduring capacity or predisposition for sexual desires towards a particular sex slash gender. All right, now, I imagine many of us are familiar with these terms already, but I want to make sure we're all on the same playing field as we move into this question for the morning. What does the Bible say about gender identity and sexual orientation? Let's set up the gender topic first. Someone's internal sense of being socially male or maybe culturally female, something in between. And really, man, it's... Incredible, the fact that this conversation can even exist. On the broad scale of things, this is very novel in our cultural moment. For much of human history, admittedly, the sense of gender was unquestionably linked to one's biological sex. So much so that the terms were used synonymously. 
To be male was to be a man. To be female was to be a woman. But as Genesis 3 and Romans 1 tell us, things started, sin did enter our world, didn't it? And humans exchanged the fullness of joy and the glory of God for slavery to an unfulfilling love of their own desires. We exchanged doing what God wants for doing what we want. Compounded over time, then, various philosophical lies have been assembled in our cultural moment, one on top of the other, to create a constantly evolving cultural moment. And I want to share with you four of the most influential yet untrue concepts that are kind of fueling where we are today, all rooted in the fact that we've departed from God. The compelling lies of our cultural moment are this. One, truth is subjectively defined by each person. Two, that your body is merely a container for the real you somewhere in there. Three, that sex the way you like it is true happiness. And then fourthly, that living your own authentic truth is the ultimate virtue. You may not hear these ideas stated as directly and matter-of-factly as this, but they're behind every advertisement, every book, every novel, every movie, every job promotion. These lies are saturating our world. And Friday afternoon, evening, when the snow was still kind of wet and heavy, the the kids and I were in the side yard, and we started to roll up a snowball. And, and when you're doing that, right, you, you're rolling it along the snow, and it just kind of blankets into a bigger and bigger snowball, doesn't it, to make this snowman? You're, you're familiar with that experience? It just adds another layer and another layer. It's kind of like a blanket getting rolled up into a ball. A lot like that, these falsehoods, layer upon layer, have been accumulating They've picked up speed. It's like it's rolling downhill, careening into our cultural moment, crashing into the truth, and shifting our assumptions, causing an avalanche of outcomes and behaviors. These unbiblical philosophies about how you should live have fueled confusion on these topics. So let's consider the confusion around gender identity then. When someone experiences misalignment between their biological sex and their sense of gendered self, what do they look to? What determines who they really are and why? Ultimately, this is the question around gender identity that we have to answer. Is it their biology that determines who they are? Or is it their thoughts or their feelings that determines who they really are? Do we look to their body or their mind to determine what's right? Our culture answers this question through the lens of these four compelling lies. Having been shaped and formed by these philosophical ideas, this is our culture's answer today. Sex and gender are two separate things. Your gender is the real you, and you've got to pursue it if you want to find meaning in life. That's what we're told is right but we as Christ followers are not called to simply absorb these bad philosophies. In fact, 2 Corinthians 10 tells us that we destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and we take every thought captive to Christ. So let's take our thinking captive to God. Let's destroy any ideas that are against him, which means we have to know what God's word says. Let's take this question about 
gender to God's absolute truth in the Bible. And we're going to do that by building on where we started last week in Genesis chapter 1. Because in Genesis 1, verse 27, we see this, that God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. And then verse 31, and God saw everything that he made, and behold, everything that he made was very good. We're going to keep building on this truth. Remember, Pastor Steve said last week, really this entire Being Human series is one big, long sermon that we've broken up into four parts. So, three biblical principles on gender identity. First, all humans are made in the image of God. We focused on that image of God last week, that every human has incredible intrinsic worth and value because they reflect God's image. That's an incredible truth. But here I want to focus on another aspect of this. Every human is made in God's image. As in God is our creator, we are the creations. We are not the authority, our creator is. He is. I've heard it said this way, we take our cue for what is true then from the one who made us. We take our cue for what is true about us from the one who made us. And what do we say, see that is true about us? Second of all, Humans are embodied by design. Humans are embodied by design. Our Christian worldview, as we look through God's word in every way, sees the concept of the human body as inherently good, as a well-designed gift from God. Do you feel that way about your body? It is good and fundamentally, as a concept, well-designed from God. That's unique in many world religions and thought processes. Our bodies are not obstacles on our path to enlightenment. In fact, we believe in a physical, bodily resurrection from the dead for all people, to life with him forever or to punishment and judgment. Now, sin now lives in our bodies, and that's a problem, isn't it? But we are more than our body. We, so while we are more than our bodies, we are not less than our bodies. So our bodies, in other ways, in other topics, in other sermons we might focus on, are not to be abused or rejected or taken from granted. Our goal is to live in a harmony and in control over our body, to use it to do what God designed it to do. Humans are embodied by design. And then third, then we see that sexual binary is God's good design. Sexual binary is God's good design. Male and female, he created them and called it very good. God created humans with intentional design as a sexual dimorphic. To go back to that scientific term, 
He created women with female bodies as a psychosomatic whole. He created men with male bodies as a psychosomatic whole. Psycho, mind and cognition, soma, body. We are one whole unit. We are body and soul, biology and cognition, flesh and spirit, sex and gender, a whole. Man or woman. That's what this passage has to say about gender identity. We are created. Humans are embodied. Humans are binary. So to synthesize all these truths, when someone experiences, and this happens, misalignment between their biological self and their sense of gendered self, what determines who they are and why? The Bible's answer is this. Your body is good evidence of God's good design for your gender. Your body is good evidence of God's good design for your gender. You know, God didn't make a mistake when he created humanity. God didn't make a mistake when he created you with your biologically driven gender that you inherited. God created you with your gender on purpose for your good and for his glory. And yes, while in a broken world, sometimes we struggle with many things, including this, we look to our physical bodies, our genetic and DNA and anatomical reality to determine our sense of gendered self. That is the appropriate and biblical way to solve the problem. Alongside lots and lots of good care and help. And there's a lot more we could say about that. About the mental condition of gender dysphoria and all the additional elements that go along with it. But to answer that, we don't have time. So I encourage you to check out some of those resources we're recommending, to sign up to go to that Verge-hosted seminar on these issues. There's a lot more to learn. But we also want to ask this morning about sexual orientation, about whether you're straight or gay or bi. What does the culture say and what does the Bible say about our sexual drive? Maybe we'll say it this way, when someone experiences sexual desire towards any gender, what should they do with that? That's maybe the way to boil down the question on this issue. And our culture answers this question through the influence of those four compelling lies that we talked about earlier. That truth is defined by each person and your body is merely a container for the real you and sex the way you like it is true happiness and living your authentic truth is the ultimate virtue. Well, culture's answer then becomes this. The only boundary is consent, but your sexuality is your path to happiness. That's the message that is inherently and even straightforwardly proclaimed and portrayed in many ways. But what does the Bible say? There's countless passages that address sexuality and, and marriage in the Bible, including the very creation of marriage here in Genesis chapter 2, right around the corner from where we just were. 
However, there are five times, maybe specifically, that the Bible addresses sexual orientation using the exact concept, the exact concept of homosexuality. Those are Genesis 19, Leviticus 18 and 20, Romans chapter 1, 1 Corinthians 6, and 1 Timothy chapter 1. We won't work through all of those. We're just going to look at one, but they're all consistent and clear. And, and to look at one, let's look at Romans chapter 1. Because I know our church has a history of having walked through this chapter in a lot of time back in our Romans series. And it says this in Romans 1, halfway through verse 26. It says, there won't, women in this world Paul is talking about where sin runs rampant, there are women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. Saying giving up natural, heterosexual relations then is not having sexual intimacy with who God intended. The Bible says then that that is wrong. It calls it a consuming passion here, a brazen act, an error. In context, Paul says it's a dishonorable act. He calls it lust. This passage, Romans 1, and the others like it are all consistent in the picture they paint. This is the biblical principle on sexuality. One, that same-sex activity... Activity is not an act to be celebrated, but in fact a sin to be forgiven. But it's more than that. Because we really need to break away from a, a secular paradigm of straight desires versus LGBT desires. And instead use biblical categories of good sexual desires versus sinful sexual desires. That's the way the Bible talks about this. Not straight versus gay, but good versus sinful. Because good sexual and romantic desires are those whose end is within the context of biblical marriage. And sinful sexual and romantic desires are those whose end is outside of the context of a biblical marriage. So, yes, same-sex sexual activity is not an act to be celebrated, but a sin to be forgiven. But also, point number two, in fact, the Bible condemns all sexual activity outside of a heterosexual marriage. That is the message for everyone that the Bible shares, not just for some supposed enemy out there, but for everyone, including those in here. Because the biblical standard is not mere heterosexuality in all of its forms. That's not robust enough in God's Word's perspective. Heterosexuality does communicate the right direction, but it doesn't capture the full biblical standard. I mean, what about heterosexual rape? Or adultery between a man and a woman? Or heterosexual hookup culture? Or heterosexual porn? See, it, it's not merely heterosexuality that God is after here. But it's also not any other sexual orientation. When someone experiences a sexual desire towards any gender, what should they do with it? That's our question. God's standard is this. The Bible says we're called to holy sexuality. Holy sexuality. Chastity in singleness and faithfulness in heterosexual marriage. That's God's standard. 
chastity and singleness, faithfulness and marriage. This is God's good original design, and it's incredible, and it's a reasonable calling. It's not an archaic relic of a time gone by. It's the right setting for the gift. It's a hearth for a fire to be incredible and warm and inviting, but not burn the house down. This topic is important to God because he designed sex to be beautiful and intimate and monogamous activity in a marriage. Chastity, in case we're not clear, means having self-control over your sexual desire and activity, refraining from it until it's proper place in a marriage between one man and one woman as God intended. This honors the Lord and obeys him. Faithfulness in marriage means directing all of your romantic and physical intimacy towards only your spouse, cherishing and delighting them within God-honoring consensual context. This is God's truth. No matter how we feel about it, no matter what our minds or our bodies or desires tell us. Okay. That was a slog, I know. But we said in the beginning we wanted to talk about what the Bible says on these issues. And we've just purposefully done that. Your body is good evidence of God's good design for your gender. And God has a standard for sexuality. It's holy sexuality. It's chastity and singleness and faithfulness in heterosexual marriage. But now, I want to spend our remaining time answering the question, what do I do with this? What do I do with what the Bible says in light of my life and our culture and my background or my history or the, the people I love? What do I do with this? And I want to start by talking to anyone with whom this resonates, with whom these areas are reality. Maybe you're uncertain about your gender or you experience an alternate sexual orientation, or you struggled or struggle with sexual sin. To those who have this struggle, I want to say a few things clearly. First, I want to say we see you, we are here for you, and we love you. You are welcome here. Although I should warn you, all the rest of us are sinners too, all right? So just be warned. In fact, I want to invite you. I would love it. We would love it if you were to reach out to us and share with us some of your story. And to work with that illustration, we'd love to have the opportunity to try to write God and this church family into the chapters to come in your story ahead. You're welcome here. We love you. We're here for you. And I also want to say this. I believe God's word says, this is how you are, but it is not who you are. Because sin has wrecked this world with a curse. It's inflicted harm. It's caused all of us to rebel in all sorts of ways against the one who made us and designed us with purpose. And also... There's just 
difficulty and brokenness in the world, like gender dysphoria or trauma. We try to make sense of our heartaches in lots of ways. So whatever is the cause, this might be currently how you are. But it is not your identity. It cannot give you lasting fulfillment, and it does not define you. Rather, who you are is an image bearer of your God, whose image is on you, and your worth then is certain. Your design has redemption value, and your future can be for good forever. This may be how you are now, but it is not who you are. And I want to say something more. And perhaps the way I'm going to say this could serve as a bit of a template for anyone else to use if they're not sure how to respond in their own relationships or environments to others. Because this is maybe, you might say, our message to the transgender and the LGBTQI community. And it's this. First, know this. Jesus loves you. And because I love you, I want you to know Jesus. Two, God's good design for your body is the best indicator of your gender. Also, Jesus affirmed that sexual activity belonged only in heterosexual marriage. And finally, I'm convinced that we can experience the best life by believing God's truth. That maybe encapsulates the heart of this entire sermon today. And I think it it is maybe worth affirming to our entire church family that you have conversations structured just like this. Because first of all, it centers Jesus in the conversation, which is really what we're ultimately after. It states a positive biblical ethic instead of coming out against people when you can't possibly come out after every sin issue including your own in every conversation. And then also it points the conversation past the specific topic at hand and towards ultimately our Savior and Lord. This is a great approach to conversations when you're having them. Because the ultimate answer to this gender or sexual identity problem is not found in changing what you feel like or changing who you sleep with. It comes from changing who you trust in and believe and obey and love. So, to those who have this struggle, that's what we want you to know. That's what we'd love to begin the conversation like. But then, perhaps to those who don't have this particular struggle, I have a few thoughts I want to share with you today. If this is not your particular sin struggle, I want us then to have compassion for people's stories and conviction for people's sake. Compassion for their stories, conviction for their soul. Maybe start with some thoughts on the compassion side of this. Talked about the gracious side of this. Church family, we need to make sure we always treat people with respect and with dignity. Especially maybe perhaps because this community is often in pain. They face astonishing rates of suicide attempts. The longest study on on those receiving sex reassignment surgery, in fact, indicates they have 20 times the rate of suicide 
after, in the decades after their surgeries, compared to the general population. They face concurrent health, mental issues at times, and backgrounds often of trauma or loneliness. This is often, not always, but often a community in pain. So how do we engage with people who are then confused or struggling with their gender identity or their sexual orientation? We do it with dignity. We do that by treating them with respect. We ask questions. We are generous with them. We cherish them and their worth. We see them primarily as persons to love, not battles to fight. Let's do that. I think this is the right lens for how to approach maybe specific questions or scenarios you might struggle with how to treat or what to say. We want to build, yes, gospel and flourishing bridges to their souls. But also, we don't want to reinforce lies or signal that we agree. So we're always looking for truth and grace. I suspect that the closer you are to someone, the more gracious truth you'll want to convey to them. But I also suspect that the more truthful you are to someone, the more gracious kindness you'll need to be showing them. Guys, let's just, let's do this. Let's be hard to hate because how wonderfully loving we are to those around us, okay? Second, for those who don't have this particular struggle, I want to invite us in our families, in this church, in our jobs, in our jokes, let's reject bad gender stereotypes. Just not helpful, guys. Not edifying. In so many instances, much of the driving force behind an individual's gender crisis, especially at young ages, is a confusion over how they see themselves measuring up against an overly simplistic gender stereotype. Let's not allow an average to become an expectation. Women do not have to love fashion or conversation or pastel color groups. Men do not have to love smoked meats or contact sports or unhealthy ways of dealing with their emotions. I'm not ignoring real differences between men and women. They are beautiful differences. I'm just saying we have sacred similarities that are greater. I'm just saying that when we champion a gender distinction, let's hold biblical standards, not cultural ones that are going to change and grow and are probably sinful in the first place. Let's glance at some godly examples of the men and women we see in the Bible. Men are, are shepherds and farmers and metal workers and musicians and cooks and warriors and gentle and sensitive. Men cry and hug and sew fabric and nurture children. Men write poetry. They cultivate intimate friendships. Men prophesy and make disciples. Men are married and parent children. Men are single and childless. And in the Bible, we see positive godly examples of women who are cooks and judge Israel and sew fabrics and help rebuild cities. Women deal in real estate and run businesses. They kill God's enemies. They broker peace agreements. They prophesy. Women compose songs and nurture children. They cultivate intimate friendships. They make disciples. They proclaim the Lord's resurrection. They proclaim the gospel. They are martyrs. Women are married and have children. Women were single and women were childless. All of these things express in innumerable degrees and traits of the human persona, imaging God, reflecting aspects of his character. 
Do we see the contrast there and how narrowly we often pigeonhole people into thinking their gender has to be expressed? Men, especially fathers, your template for being a male human and raising your sons is not a so-called alpha male or a real man. It is also not a cowardly pushover or a lazy slob. Your model for your gendered and embodied self is Jesus. Women, your template for being a female human, moms especially maybe, the template to raise your daughters is not that perfect girl we see on GPAs or on social media. It's not a 1950s housewife. It's not a who-needs-men super feminist. The model for your gendered and embodied self is Jesus. So, while there's nothing wrong with grouping affinities and gender-typical ways, those are, exist, they are biologically normative, we must be careful to include, to validate those who don't fit those averages and point them to something that's more helpful to continue following God in all the ways he's designed them and made them capable to do. Let's reject gender stereotypes. And then last on this item, let's open our lives to make this church a great place to fight temptation. Let's open our lives to make this church a great place to fight every temptation. Because we all are. And think about this. In this context, if a brother or sister here in our church has gender dysphoria or an LGBT sexual orientation as unwanted as those feelings may be, and they wanted to follow God and live out as their identity as a Christian, they would have a hard fight on their hands. They would have the promise of power to fight this temptation and to say no to sinful actions, yes, like all of us do. But they would have no certainty that these feelings would change, like all of our temptations. Think about yourself. Merely because you are a Christian, have your sinful temptations and weaknesses just supernaturally disappeared. I don't think that's true for anyone in here. Did Paul's struggles and thorn go away when he asked God for them? No. no. So it is that sometimes there's a sense for these brothers and sisters in Christ that they are, in their obedience to Christ, facing a self-imposed, perhaps singleness, that is not their desire. And this can feel to them like a life sentence while they watch other families experiencing familial support and care and the stages of life that they would have longed for. We need then as a church to take the initiative to ensure that temptation can be fought here and celebrated. That loneliness and isolation are eradicated because of our presence in people's lives. We need to initiate the invite. We need to grocery shop with that brother. We need to invite people over for low-key dinners and laundry folding parties. Even if they're not a natural fit for our typical friendship, even if they have made permanent medically altering decisions in the past that makes us unsure about some of the, of the dynamic about our interaction. As they choose to follow Jesus, as they reach out for help, we need to cultivate a great community for all to fight temptation here. Amen. 
So we need compassion like that. We need it. But we also need conviction. We also need conviction. Because, as a first idea, it's true that bad ideas do have consequences and victims. As followers of Jesus, we need to do what's best for human flourishing as God designed it. And there's, it's hard to get around the fact that gender theory has implications that are not merely wrong. They are dangerous. They will create harm for people, especially minors, who can't yet understand the implications of their decisions. As an example, I'll just say, because of the nature of puberty, for instance, when it comes to transgenderism, a major motivation for a cultural moment is to expedite treatment through hormones and surgical procedures with permanent and irreversible effects. Often, especially in the last decade, before rigorous mental health treatment is undergone, before additional underlying factors are treated or cared for, before that minor could cognitively even understand the consequences of these cho choices. I mean, if you consider the largest study up to date indicates that 87% of kids with gender dysphoria detransition from that gender transphoria back to their actual gender if medical intervention is delayed until they're 15 years old. If, if they're not suppressed and then surgically changed from going through puberty, almost all of them naturally, without any relationship with God, go back to identifying and feeling comfortable in their biological sex. Think about your teenage and tweenage years. Is that scary? Did you love everything about yourself in those times? Were you open to anything that was marketed to you as able to increase your social standing and your self-worth? Did you buy that product? Did you try those shoes? Did you try that joke that that other person could land and you found out you could not? Right? Everyone in that stage is desperate to be important and have worth. And when culture markets an avenue for that and then rushes you into that, many people are open to the experience and find initial positive impact. As a church, we need to provide an initial positive impact in God's design and God's ways. We want to be sympathetic and heartbroken for the many who have been guided through this process by well-meaning and concerned parents who are often personally manipulated by an experimental and reckless medical system. We want to be sympathetic, and then we want to alert others to the danger. We want to care enough about the flourishing of people to stand up for biblical convictions. Even where standing up could cost us something. In grace, we can have conviction. And know this. Love is required, but not approval. Many people in this cultural moment indicate that anything less than approval and even advocacy for their gendered or sexual identity constitutes, in their view, a hatred of them. And we don't have to be bothered by that assertion. Because love is required, but not approval. I mean, think about it. How absurd a requirement would that be? Do you have any relationships in your life where you approve of every single thing, 100%, that the people you love about do or think or believe? Husbands, do you approve of everything? 
Wives, do you approve of everything? Kids, do you approve of everything your parents do or say or think? But do you love them? Right? While we must love and show kindness and value every human's worth, we cannot approve of any act that is against God's truth. Instead, it's better to delight and love and honor all people, grace, but not endorse or lie about the sinfulness of their lifestyle. The rebellion against their creator, it exhibits. To close, to those in the room who don't have this particular struggle, let's have conviction about this as well. You have the same responsibilities to obey. You have the same, we have the same responsibilities to obey. When it comes to your identity, when it comes to your desires, your responsibility in the same way is to respond in obedience when you're tempted, to put all sinful desires to death, and when you sin, to run to Jesus in repentance. Those are the same desires. The responsibility are the same no matter what your sin tendency is. And so, praise the Lord that Ephesians 2, 8, 9 says, For by grace we have been saved through faith. It is not our own doing. It is the gift of God, not the result of our works, so that no one may boast. Because we all fall short of that responsibility. We're all incapable of meeting God's standards, and none of us come bragging to God about who we are. Ultimately, you, we, all in Christ, have the same need for a Savior. We have the same need for a Savior. 